0: I am Doug Friedman, and I am Meredith Levy, and this is Your Mental Breakdown,
1: the podcast roundtable edition,
0: extravaganza bonus thing. And we are joined today by a couple of people that I'm really excited to talk to. First, we have Sahej Kohli, who is the founder of Brown Girl Therapy, a mental health community for children of immigrants. She's a former journalist of the last six years and currently in the process of becoming a psychotherapist. Sahej, welcome and thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. We are also joined by Ashley McGirt, who is an author, a speaker, and a licensed psychotherapist herself and a racial trauma specialist, which I am really curious about. And you've written books on, on dying, grief and loss, and healing from that, and- I think one of your battle cries, I've, I've heard you say it before, if we're going to heal, let it be glorious, which I, I love. So Ashley, thank you for joining us too.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And I mean, we'll jump right in. You guys didn't hear this. You did, but our listeners didn't. Right before we started, we were kind of talking and just feeling a little nervous even about this discussion. And we are here to bring you with true vulnerability for people in mental health, having a discussion about some of the issues that are around all of us, I would say today, but my guess is they've been around us all of our lives. And I'm I'm really interested actually in in that idea of being a racial trauma specialist. How did that kind of come up? What does that mean?
3: Yeah. So it really evolved from the work that I started doing with Dr. Joy DeGroote. She's the author of post-traumatic slave syndrome. And I really just started studying and researching the impact that racism has on our psyche. I experienced a lot of racism as a black woman growing up in a predominantly white environment, especially being in positions of management, being the only woman of color, oftentimes the black person. And it took an immense toll on me. And I just knew there had to be other individuals experiencing these things. So as I started researching, And learning from educators like Dr. Joy DeBru, Dr. Beverly Tatum, that is really how my work took off. And there's not a lot of clinicians who specialize in this work. The American Psychological Association really just recognized um, not too long ago that this is even a thing, but not something that we're taught in schools. So I had to do a lot of research outside of the education that I received taking upon my lived experiences, research from other individuals. And that's how it took off. The majority of my clients who see me are Black women, um, but I've worked with all individuals from all walks of life. And the working definition that I tend to utilize when it comes to racism, I know many individuals, they'll seek out Webster's definition. And Webster recently acknowledged that their definition is actually oppressive and how they want to be non-biased in their definition. And it took a college student to reach out to them and say how their definition does not actually look at institutional racism and how things like that, how systems of oppression and power are really what race is. Oftentimes we confuse it with bigotry or prejudice, which every single person walking this earth, ha- we have biases, we can be prejudiced, we can be bigoted everybody cannot be racist in the extent that you have that element of power. What I mean by that is me, if I'm going to be biased or prejudiced towards you, it's not going to prevent you from getting adequate access to healthcare or education. I cannot control what you're able to see through the media or what you're taught in school. That is what racism does on a large scale. I always want people to acknowledge that it's a system of power without that system of power. I'm really just kind of hurting your feelings. If I have a business, I can discriminate against you in that way. But overall, I don't have any type of control as a black woman to oppress you unless I'm preventing you from coming to my business or my home. Of course, there's things like that, that I can do. And I don't want to take away from that harm because those are all harmful as well. But racism as a whole,
1: I believe and the definition that I utilize includes a system of power and oppression. So if a white female Jewish person came to you and said, I want to deal with racial trauma, is that a thing? Yeah, I definitely would work with them and around the trauma
3: that they're experiencing. And there's different levels of trauma. There's vicarious trauma, there's secondary trauma. Sure. So there's different types of trauma. And I always say, you define your trauma because what's okay. traumatic to me might not be traumatic to someone else. Like I used to work with a hospice patient. So I dealt with people who were dying on a day-to-day basis. So death is not as traumatic to me as it may be to someone else. So however you define your trauma is your trauma. I'm not going to take that away from you. Okay, great. Thank
1: you.
0: Yeah. When you were talking about the power dynamic, it it made me think of, Sahaj, something that I don't want to assume I know about you because I know nothing about you, but I think of the power dynamic within a family and within certain cultures. And thinking of what I know of a lot of South Asian cultures is therapy is not something done or sought after. And and talking about your problems, even outside of your family, is often not done and and not sought after. And I don't know if there's something similar in what Ashley was saying that that power dynamic, if that applies to to either your own experience or what helped you realize you wanted to kind of speak to these children of immigrants, not necessarily all brown, but just people that had this experience.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think with everything that's been said, there's an intersectionality that we all have that will either compound our experiences of oppression or compound our ability to have privileges. And so that shows up a lot in, in my family dynamics as well. So I come from the Sikh faith. So my dad, my brother, the men in my family wear turbans, have long beards, have been stereotyped as terrorists, especially after nine 11 um, six were the first to be, to experience hate crimes um, and hate crimes rose because of that. I am, you know, a fair skinned, light skinned woman who, doesn't wear a turban, who married a white man. So essentially, I have so much more privilege than, say, my sister who was walking around with her husband who wears a turban or my brother who's walking around, you know, with his kids and they all have long hair. And so I think in that way, you know, we all have our own intersection of identities that compound on the ways that we are experienced by the world and the way that we experience ourselves. Very specifically to my family, though, a lot of children of immigrants have Resources and privileges and opportunities that their parents, their immigrant parents, or immigrant grandparents didn't have or don't have. I call it this thriver's guilt that I see a lot in the community, where it's like, I now have access to things that my parents didn't have. So, take me, for instance, you know, almost a decade ago when I experienced something traumatic and I needed to seek my own therapy long before I entered the field of, of knowing what mental health is, I went to my parents and I was living at home with them at the time. And I told them, I think I need professional care. My parents, they took it as a sign that they failed me in some way, because as immigrants, they came to this country by themselves. They didn't have opportunities, resources. They didn't understand what mental health was. They weren't taught that in their own families. Both my parents married very young. My mom was 18. My dad was 22 or 23, immediately had kids. And so their life experience is so much different than mine growing up with, in essentially the free world with so many resources and opportunities, recognizing that I have chances to seek this emotional security that they've never really sought out or had access to. So there is a power dynamic in that way, but it also, it can sometimes create tension, generational conflict between parents and their kids grandparents and their grandkids. And I see that a lot in the immigrant communities. And that's part of the reason why I started this platform, because I really want to democratize mental health, because it's hard to think you deserve quality care when you don't see care that looks like you. But I also believe that the more marginalized your community is, the more stigmatized therapy and mental health care is. And so part of the work I do is trying to democratize mental health, but create these accessible resources and really destigmatize what therapy is so people can believe that it's also for them.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. It's something we talk about a lot and why we started the podcast was to destigmatize what therapy is and what a therapist is. We wanted people to hear how we talk. And that's the podcast is Meredith and I talking to each other, but you hear me in therapy with a client and you follow the client through the entirety of their therapy process. And we've had the first two seasons were the same client because of the pandemic, but people got to hear one year of somebody's therapy in full. And this is what it sounds like. But I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, he was, I think 24 years old when he started and a a white guy from Washington state, like that's what they're hearing. And that's how I sound with this guy, how therapy might sound with someone else as a, as a client or someone else as a therapist could be completely different. And I think that's such a key because I hate saying this, but I think it's true. Therapy is a white European centric profession. The books are written that way. It is changing, but that's how it started and how it's seen. So I really love what both of you are doing, frankly, because it's professionally and personally seeing a therapist and trying to find somebody that looks like you and getting others to recognize that you have some choice in this. You don't just have to go see the old white guy with the beard that looks like Freud, like it, that's not what it is, right? So I'm, I'm wondering if for you guys, what got you into this profession? Because it's a, it's a career path that you chose and it's not just one that you go, hey, you know what? I think I'm gonna go work at Macy's for a while or I think we're gonna go, do, like you have to go to school and you have to pursue this. And Sahaj, you're in this, but Ashley, you went through this too. Was this, what drew you to this? Why, why do this work? Why, why be this?
3: Yeah, I actually wanted to be a lawyer and my grandmother died and I experienced extreme grief that then turned itself into major depressive disorder. And I didn't know how to manage my depression in the black community. Many of us ascribe to Christianity and it's like, just pray about it. Just go to church. And my family felt as if I wasn't praying hard enough or I wasn't going to God. And that was just the one thing that I needed to do but it was just a really challenging time for me. So I ended up going to a therapist and I ended up seeing a white woman and she did not understand the role of grandmother in black families. It was just like a whole cycle of life for her. And I pretty much should get over it. Mind you, my grandmother was 62 years old, which is extremely young to, die, which is why I also do a lot of the work that I do around um, death and dying and really just trying to do preventative care around mental health services. Because as it relates to those of us in the black community, many of us are dying younger and at disproportionate rates due in part to chronic stress related illnesses that could really be managed if we went to therapy or we had other outlets. But there's such a huge stigma in our community. One, because we need to go to church. Two, because of the history of oppression within the healthcare system, the Tuskegee experiment. Um, I live in Washington state where they perfected lobotomies on native Americans. So all of this negative history that is here, that has a fear. And then also if we're going to have certain diagnoses put on us, that's going to then maybe have our children taken from us, prevent us from working in certain positions. So there's just a huge fear. And because most of the people who are psychiatrists, psychologists were white, they didn't understand cultural symptoms and they would diagnose us in ways that would be extremely harmful. So for example, a white male could show up in an office with the same exact symptoms as a black male, yet he's diagnosed with bipolar and the black man is diagnosed with schizophrenia based on the color of his skin. And people with schizophrenia, they're more feared, there's more stigmas around having that type of illness, whereas bipolar is seen to be more manageable. So all of this really led me to the field because I felt like there had to be other black people, other people of color feeling what I was feeling. And the majority of my session, I spent my time educating this white woman on what life was like for me being black. And I'm a child at this point, because my grandmother died when I was, Uh, extreme, I was nine years old. So I'm nine years old, educating a grown woman on on race relations in America and the dynamics of my family. And so I spent a long time depressed. I never got the healing that I needed throughout those sessions. And there were no Black counselors around um, in the community that I lived in because my mom did try to seek them out and find other supports And it was just other white women. So one also being a lack of people who looked like me.
1: Doug and I both worked in community mental health in the inner city. We worked together and I worked with almost only Hispanic families because I'm a bilingual. And I remember one family in particular. Finally, I got to see this kid after she had been through multiple exorcisms because she was dealing with bipolar and it's difficult in the Hispanic culture to go to therapy or be on medication. And I found that with so many of the people that we worked with and we did everything we could to help these kids, their parents get like their papers so they could stay in the country. And in the beginning, they would look at me and be like, In Spanish, they would be talking shit about me and all this stuff. And I would be like, oh, yeah, no. And after a little while, they grew to really like us, Doug, too, because we had some insight. And the more we were both there for years and it was really hard for them to find Spanish speaking therapists because therapists were predominantly white. And so to find that diversity was really hard.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me, I don't know, your guys' experience in Sag, you're in school, so you might know this, that when I was in school in D.C., they had us read a book called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, and it was a, a book uh, about the Hmong culture, and one of the children in the culture was seeking medical help for what I think turned out to be a seizure disorder, and they were having grand mal seizures or something, and in their culture, in the Hmong culture, they were just saying the spirit catches her and she falls down. It, it's a spiritual thing. It was that intersection of, well, there's medical help that you need and we can see what's wrong, but the family and the culture said no. It's something that I think as therapists, we, we learn and we're really supposed to take on and understand. I also think unless you have that kind of life experience, it's not going to be a part of you. I grew up playing pickup basketball with all of my friends that were Filipino, Korean, Black. And it's what I'm used to. It was no big deal. I don't think that's the norm. I don't think people have that experience. And maybe growing up in LA, we got that melting pot. And both of you are shaking your head. Uh, and I know you—you you guys didn't grow up in LA, so your experience is different. And that's uh, maybe that speaks to you know the, the racial trauma that that you were talking about earlier, Ashley. That it's generational trauma. It's cultural trauma, and it's not just one traumatic experience. It's what you see around you all the time
1: can i also quickly just ask for i just want to ask so black versus african-american what are you comfortable with what am i supposed to say again walking on eggshells i'm just like fuck Uh, what do i like
3: i would say get used to walking on eggshells because these are uncomfortable conversations I know you have to be uncomfortable because we don't want to be comfortable right now with the state of race relationships. Nobody should be comfortable. I would find a safe space where you can go and you can process and where you have a group of people, because I don't speak for all black people. Me personally, I define myself as black. I don't know. I just don't say African American. There are people who want to be connected to Africa and they want to be called African-American. So I would ask the person, what are they comfortable with being called? How can, how would they like to be identified? Because we are such a melting pot. Everyone's different and it is going to be like, you're walking on eggshells because of the state of race relationships. And until that's improved as a whole, I think it is going to be a touchy subject. So you're going to have to just do your own work to make sure that you can manage your own mental health when having these conversations. Me personally, I'll just tell them like, I'm black, I'm a black woman. However, people want to be identified. I can't say what is right for everyone because I have a homeboy who he wants to be called African-American and he just made a post about it. And I was like, well, shoot, call me black.
1: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. If I met your friend and I was like, Hey, would you prefer to me call you black or African-American? Is that a question that is received? Is it okay for me to ask? I don't even fucking know. Again,
3: it's going to depend on the mood and the energy okay. of the person. I come from a very diverse family, so I have white aunties and uncles, Korean. Uh, it's yeah. a melting pot in the McGur household. Um, <laughs> uh, so like, my aunties who are white will come to me and ask me all kinds of questions. And i will be like, don't say that to black people out <laughs> in the street. It's not going to be. Okay. And then I also tell people like, don't put everything on your one black friend, your one agent. <laughs> no, so, totally. but you're going to make mistakes and it's going to be okay. And just let the person know you're not trying to be harmful and things are going to happen. Microaggressions happen on a daily basis, and so many people are confused when I give workshops on microaggressions, and people will literally argue with me, saying, "How is that harmful?" Because I asked a person where are they from, or because I don't want to allow someone to touch my
1: braids or Wait. anything like that. So- <laughs> that is like a macroaggression. Wait, yeah, I was I about to ask Sahed where her family is from because you just said. South Asian. So now that I was about to say that, and then you just said that's a microaggression, is it? Well, it's it's like what
2: Ashley is saying. It depends on the energy. It also depends on the context of the conversation. For me, that question can be totally loaded coming from, let's say a man who's trying to hit on me in the street and is trying to exoticize where I come from and wants to know where I'm from. But in this context, I don't feel like it's a microaggression. To answer your question, I'm from my family's from India, but my mom's actually from Japan. Uh, born in, uh, She wasn't born there, but she was raised there. So my maternal family lives mm-hmm. in Japan. Wow. I visited Japan a lot growing up. And this is what I mean by intersectionality as well is like, you can't know that just by looking at me. You can't know that I, I have like fond, nostalgic memories for Japan just because I look Indian. I have an Indian name. Where you're from is such a complicated question anyways, especially when you're talking to people who come from households and families where immigration is such a thread in their ancestors.
0: For you guys in in the circles that you're in and what you, you know, the communities that you're creating, if you're seeing or, or feeling that sense of how do you know? what to say what to do what to tell your clients what to tell other therapists i don't know how you guys feel about it because you walk in shoes that i don't walk in
2: i think for me personally in the last year what i've noticed in the south asian community is that there was finally a reckoning of some sorts because of george floyd because of the you know black lives matter movement and Because of the pandemic, quite frankly, I think because the pandemic put everything else on pause, I think a lot of communities were faced with what was at the reality of what was actually happening for the first time. And that is, quite frankly, so incredibly sad. And, and it shouldn't have taken this long. But what I saw in the South Asian community was a lot of people finally being like, how do we have these conversations with our parents? How do we have these conversations with our neighbors, with our aunties, with our uncles, with our grandparents? And that is not a comfortable conversation to have for many of us. I have always embraced discomfort. It's just been a part of my nature since I was little, which I will, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know why, but I'm someone who doesn't really get uncomfortable by these things. And if I do, I will just embrace it and keep, I I won't turn away from it, which I think a lot of people tend to turn away from that discomfort. And that's the problem. It's like, let's pretend it didn't exist. Let's not keep powering through. Let's not make the changes we need to make. And so when I had to have these conversations last last year with my parents as well um, and people I knew in the community, it was something that no one had really talked about. Of course, it's uncomfortable, but that's where like obviously my experience and Ashley's experience are going to be incredibly different because I have so much more privilege than than the black community has. And so for me, it's about being an ally, fighting against the model minority myth, recognizing that immigration and my parents being able to be in this country was at the hands of black people in the civil rights movement. So like those are the kinds of conversations that need to be had and it differs from community to community.
3: What I've been seeing within the black community that I'm surrounded around is a lot of triggers a lot of upsets and hurts because now we're having this collective conversation about race, systemic racism, police violence. These are now becoming everyday household terms. And the reality is that these are not foreign concepts for most black people. And we have these conversations within our community now people's employers are sending out letters about Black Lives Matter and acknowledging things that we have known for decades. So it's been to many of the people and me being a racial trauma expert, I'm getting the people who are upset by it. So that's why I'm seeing an influx of that because they're reaching out for support. So they are really triggered by it that their coworkers are now seeing them. And it's like, You didn't recognize that Eric Garner was choked to death, but now that George Floyd was choked to death, you're starting to recognize that this is how black people are dying. So it's been a sort of sadness, also sort of like a praise. It's a double-edged sword because it's like, we're happy that you're having these conversations, but just now, you're just now seeing these things Um, So that in itself has been pretty painful to some of the people that I've seen within my community. For me, having done this work for over a decade, I'm used to people not recognizing these systems, not seeing it, not acknowledging it, because part of my work is to get people to see it and really understand how it impacts not only our mental health, but our physical health, especially because I believe Racism is the reason in which so many Black people are dying at extremely young ages. And just me doing hospice therapy, the majority of my Black hospice patients were like 30 to 60 years old. Meanwhile, my white hospice patients were living well into their hundreds. I had hospice patients I had to discharge at like 104 years old because they weren't showing signs of dying. And in order to be on hospice, you have to be actively dying. So we would discharge them. Meanwhile, I'm watching 30-year-old Black people die from COPD, chronic heart failure. This is stress. My own grandmother died from a stroke. The leading cause of strokes is stress. My grandmother was stressed out. She was attacked by the police. She had to pick tobacco. She got paid pennies, so she did have some income for picking tobacco, but it was literally pennies. And that just took years off of her lifespan. So I just wonder if she would have received the mental health services, how the trajectory of her life would have changed if she would have been able to process through her trauma, her depression, her anxiety, would she not have had a stroke at 62 years old?
0: Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's incredible. And I I mean startling to me that hospice for black people you were seeing. 30 to 60 year olds. That's, that's incredible to me. And it's something where maybe we're just aware of that now, you know, for ourselves. But I think that's something that a lot of people have been aware of for a very long time.
1: I'm okay with being uncomfortable. I'm like, you said, like I thrive on it, bring it on. It's that I don't want to offend anybody. If you know me, I ask a million questions. I've been biting my (laughs) tongue this whole time because Doug told me to not ask too many questions in a row because that's what I do. Anything and everything I am curious about. I just want to know. And I don't do that anymore for the most part.
0: I think the idea is you come from a place of true inquiry and we're having this conversation. It's truly, I think, inquiry. And and we want to know and we want to get the word out. There's something... Horrible and wonderful that's happening in the world around us, which is all the stuff that was hidden for so long or talked about only in corners is now being talked about in the open. I think our listeners are listening to a therapy podcast, so they get it. Here's an opportunity to talk about that trigger and to have a conversation about that.
1: A lot of the white clients that I work with come to me and they're like, I don't know what to do or say. And I'm like, fuck, I don't either. How do I walk through the world being white and privileged and, and not walk on eggshells. And I'm like, now I have a good answer from you, Ashley, which is like, no, you're going to. And like, that's okay. Which I think is actually really helpful.
3: Self-awareness is key. You know, that you ask a lot of questions. I know that I asked a lot of questions. So I make peace with the fact that not everyone's going to want to answer my questions. The difficulty is too many of us are stuck in our own neighborhoods, which I know we've been forced to due to being in a global pandemic, but even prior to that, I live in Seattle and my friends in Seattle refuse to go to Tacoma, which is a city 45 minutes out the way. They feel like it's another country. They refuse to go there. And it's like, you won't even leave outside of your city. So how can you experience what is outside of Seattle or outside of your norm? If you're not leaving outside of your neighborhood, So definitely we have to open ourselves up, expose ourselves to different culture. Netflix has whole different categories about different ethnicities and races where you can watch the movies. Google is your best friend. Um, So there's lots of information out there and no one should have any excuse to not navigate or not know how to be anti-racist with all of the free information that is available.
2: Yeah, I think also just like adding to that, I think what I have seen amongst some of the white people I know and have haven't do associate with is that there's this expectation. And I'm not saying this is true about either of you, but I there's this expectation for it to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Like going to your black friend, ask them questions. That's the easy way, but you are still perpetuating what the problem is that you, you deserve their time. You deserve their free labor. You deserve this to be an easy task. That's where like, it's like, it's not gonna be easy. This is gonna be a lifelong relearning, unlearning, you know, process for all of us, and frankly, all of us who are not black to be doing this work actively. Um, and so there are tons of resources. There are tons of ways to learn and, and hear people's stories and, and learn about anti-racism. I mean, there are people who are literally anti-racist educators and, and want to do that as their work who create resources for this, for this very topic. And, you know, going off of Ashley's point too, just it just reminded me like I've, I know people who've lived in big cities that are so diverse and still only gravitate to people who look or sound like them. And that's also a problem. It's like you have access to people who don't look like you who come from other cultures. You have restaurants with different foods and you are still only gravitating to what is comfortable. And it goes back to get uncomfortable. Do the thing that you've never done. Talk to the people you've never talked to, eat the food you've never eaten. That's how you learn about a culture. That's how you learn about history. That's how you like experience things in a way that is new and different.
0: Yeah, I wanna to move towards this a little bit because how you guys are talking, I absolutely agree. And I will say that we have, in a sense, broadened our hometown because of our social media presences. Sahed you, you in particular, you've got a large following on, on Instagram, It's literally called brown girl therapy, right? And I don't know that people necessarily know what it means to be brown girl therapy.
2: So uh, honestly, it started, it started very specifically for South Asian women. And that's where the Brown girl comes from. Um, I have actually had conversations with my black friends who call themselves Brown. And it's like, this is, that's where you get nuance, And it's like contextual, it's individualized. People get to decide for themselves, how they identify, how much they identify as what they identify as those are all like, very personal, personal things. For me, when I started Brown Girl Therapy, I identify as a brown girl. I have always identified as brown. I've always identified as Indian, South Asian, but skin color as brown, as a brown girl, I've, ex- I've been experienced by the world as someone who is ethnically ambiguous and brown in skin color. And I know other people have too. And so when I started Brown Girl Therapy, it was for South Asian women. It grew very quickly into something for children of immigrants. And I think that brown experience is still translatable for a lot of people who are Asian American, who are Latinx, who are come from countries across Africa. I know the brown girl therapy community has over a hundred countries represented, but then we also have the immigrants of European, the children of European immigrants. So it's, again, I, I come back to this intersectionality, but that's what it is. Like we cannot make these assumptions. It is how we are experienced by the world, how we experience the world and the privileges and oppression that we might experience along the way.
0: Mm, Yeah. Well said. Do do you guys feel a, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but a, a pressure or responsibility being people that are on social media, that you do have a platform that reaches beyond just your, your particular town or your particular culture?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think pressure, I don't know, but responsibility. Yes. I think I am a Brown woman who has worked predominantly in white places, who grew up in a predominantly white area. Um, I did go to the thing about where I grew up. It is very black or white. So it was like I grew up in. I I went to a high school that was black and white, but there wasn't anything else. I was one of few non-black, non-white people. So I was experienced differently in that way. And I have created I have I mean, I'm in a mental health field. I'm in a field that is predominantly white. I have experiences from both sides of the couch, um, both seeking therapy as a client, but now being a therapist as a woman of color, I've created a business that's really successful and I've gotten a book deal. All of these things are very rare. It's a rare thing in my community. And, And I think the more that I achieve these successes, the more responsibility I feel to represent the community. Of course, we are not a monolith. No community will ever have a monolithic identity, but I think I find it as my responsibility to shed light on these different cultures, especially I I do it twofold. I do it for my community to help them access resources, to feel seen, to feel validated, to have community. But I also do it for white therapists and other therapists who I know are going to be seeing people in my community because there's more of them. So that's where I feel the responsibility to be like, Hey, follow this page, you know, learn more from me, learn more from the community, read the comments. The community is incredibly engaged. The minute I pose any question, you will see hundreds of comments and they're very different. This is where I think social media can be so useful for people to learn, to sit, to listen, to be allies, to not join the conversation, but just follow along so that they're learning more about a community. So I don't think I feel pressure in that way. I think I, I think I just feel a lot of responsibility, which sometimes can be very overwhelming, but it's like, they say, you make it to a table. You want to look back and bring your community. You want to bring people with you on that journey. And that's how I really see the work that I'm doing is opening doors for other people to be able to also access the same things.
1: So you want to help educate white therapists because, you know, they'll be working with people in your community. Yeah. Yeah. Is that different than wanting to educate white people? I think white people
2: can follow along and learn. I just don't think that's what I am. My intention is with brown girl therapy. And it's very much in the mental health field of educating people in the field.
1: Yeah, no, I love it. And looked at it and it looks amazing.
0: I would love to think that, oh yeah, we're, we're all just open-minded in this field. If you're coming to mental health, you're coming to mental health because you have issues or you want to learn more, you want to be more open, more enlightened. But I'm sure there are a lot of people along the way that have tried to knock you down or pulled you down. It doesn't have to be racist, but just things that could even be from your own community. People saying to you like, wow, you don't leave Seattle. What's wrong with you? I don't know what your own experience and going back to when I was saying Sahaj, that power dynamic could be a family dynamic, whether it's within your own families or I would assume I'd like to think your families are proud of you, but there might've been moments along the way where they weren't. And I, I don't know what your experience with, with that is.
3: There's definitely been hardships along the way, especially being a black woman in a management position. So like, as I've Now I work for myself, but like I've been clinical directors, different things like that. And I would be questioned even by my own community about how I was in that position or why I was in that position. And a lot of times it's because even black people can uphold systems of white supremacy and have our own biases. And we're so conditioned to see a white man in a position of power that people would often go up to my white counterpart who was my assistant, didn't even have an office and just assume he was the director because he was a white male. Meanwhile, I had the nice office and they would walk right past me and just assume he was the person in charge. And I got this from my own community. So that would be a little sad in that sense, but then to hear their praise, but also I feel like people would ask me questions that they wouldn't ask a white person, like, I want to see your degree or how did you get here? And I would often have to explain myself or, Oh, you went to the university of Washington. How did you get in? And just as if I was not supposed to be at that institution of learning because of the way that I looked and it could be an age thing because also I looked really young when I was in those positions. I excelled and graduated really early. So my career took off at a really young age as well. So it could be like ageism, colorism, all of these things compiled into one that I experienced. And then in terms of maybe just like negative comments from people, because I do a lot of work around racial trauma, even like defining what racism is, I will have lots of battles about who can be racist, what is racism. And I don't engage in that background. It's not productive. And some people, no matter what you tell them, will still have their prejudices. And my goal, my intention is not to change the minds of bigots. It's to change policies and procedures that uplift them and keep them in positions of power. That is what I want to do. So I'm all about changing the laws. Um, If you want to continue to feel like Black people, BIPOC communities are a certain way, that is your prerogative. But it is the system that is enforcing those, um, the education system, the healthcare system. That is what I want to change and what I advocate for in my life and really just trying to get my family on board with mental health, especially because so many people in my family have died at really young ages and it's all been chronic stress related illnesses. I talked a lot about my grandmother, but my uncle also died of a heart attack in his fifties and he was extremely stressed out and he actually died looking for healthcare insurance. So he was traveling state to state, trying to get work and trying to health healthcare insurance and ultimately passed before any of that could happen. And when I look at his life and I look at other people in my family and other people within my community and I'm seeing its stress related to racism, related to systemic oppression, that is ultimately leading to them dying at an early age. And we all are going to experience death at some point, but I would like to have people do preventative measures and seek out therapy. I like to train therapists, white therapists, BIPOC therapists, because we are serving community members and we're practicing, most of us, from a colonized perspective. So we really have to decolonize our therapy and change the narrative overall. So I have to get really creative and how am I taking these Freudian principles that were not designed for people who look like me, Piaget, Watson, all of these individuals who studied people who looked nothing like me, but I'm taking their work and putting it into my community and expecting them to heal. So that's why I use like a lot of like African-centered principles and different things, but I'm also licensed through the state of Washington. So I have to uphold their license and regulations, which are also very oppressive. That's a whole nother podcast conversation just about the licensure process in and of itself. Yeah, I think not related,
2: but related in the terms of all of us are a product of this oppression and the systems that we live in. Something that I see a lot, that I've experienced a lot, is the competitive nature and comparison mindset that happens within my community. And that is a product of oppressive systems because so many of us feel like only one of us can make it. Only one of us can make it, so you made it. So therefore, like, I need, you're my competitor now. And when I say white people here, like I'm writing a book on the mental health for children of immigrants. I have always devoured self-help, personal development, all of those books I've devoured have always been by white authors. But even I going through the process of trying to get this book deal was like, who's going to want to sign me for a book deal when I don't look like that, when there's, I can name maybe one other person who is not a white person who already wrote a book on self-help. Like that's how the systems make us feel like, Oh, only one of us can make it. Only one of us can do the thing. And so what I've experienced through building Brown Girl Therapy, our other South Asian female therapists trying to take me down, you know, going behind my back, trying to tell places that I have speaking engagements that I'm misrepresenting myself, even though I tell everyone I'm a graduate student. I've had people be really competitive with me about the content, plagiarize what I'm doing and say that it's, you know, it's things that happen all the time. And I know it's because there's this, there's this mentality that we can't all make it together because no one's gonna, no system based in white supremacy is going to want 15 of us to to make it, even though we don't see that problem for white people. And so that's, those are the kinds of things I've, I have been experiencing and have experienced since I started Brown Girl Therapy, which goes right back to the systems that we live in. And it's, it's really disheartening. It's, it's incredibly disheartening because there's already not a lot of us. And yet we feel like we're pitted against each other because of the way the systems are created.
3: I definitely experienced some of those things as well, where it's like only one of us can make it. And I'm always uplifting other black therapists, encouraging them because I cannot do all this work. I've been booked for over a year. There's not enough black therapists. And so I'm always trying to train other people because I'm like, we need more black therapists to do this work. There's literally 0.02% of us who are licensed to do this work. So I cannot serve everyone in my community, but there's just this idea that only one of us can make it. So we're going to spite the other person. But again, I'm always uplifting. I'm dropping everyone's names. I'm mentioning their content. I'm sharing their work. That's just me. That's who I am. And I know it's going to take a village. It's going to take all of us, BIPOC, everyone, which is why I really, have a lot of like diverse trainings so that I'm hitting every different group, LGBTQIA, Muslims, different religions, because there's a need for everyone. Someone is going to be speaking out a Muslim therapist, a queer therapist, black therapist, a Christian, all of that. um, We have the capacity, but then it's, how do you identify? How do you show up? All of these, are you culturally responsive? Um, But yeah, a lot of the things that you said, I've definitely seen, especially when it comes to social media and there's a divide outside of race but just within our own therapist community between licensure types um not being licensed like you said people are calling your speaking gigs saying you're not licensed that is terrible um between coaches and I don't understand it I feel like We can all heal in different ways. So someone may need a licensed marriage family therapist or a clinical social worker. Why do I have to spread hate on that particular group or because they got their training in one way? It's really terrible. So I hope to see that change along with making the world anti-racist. It's like so many different battles. Oh, is that all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: No big deal. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you on the, like the community care aspect and like going back to Doug, what you said about pressure and me talking about responsibility. That's also how I like to use the platform is highlighting other people, highlighting their work, highlighting their workshops. Cause I cannot create all the resources. I cannot speak to every single child of immigrants. I cannot be, I can't be one person doing everything. And so to that point, Ashley, I totally feel that it's like it's just figuring out ways to use what we've worked hard to to get to help other people get to the same place. So there's more of us doing this work.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Colorism is such a big issue within the black community. I mean, overall, different communities. I just went to Haiti and Haiti and DR are fighting and feuding, kicking out dark skin Dominicans because they're assuming they're Haitian, even though they speak Spanish and they're clearly Dominican, but so it's, it's all around, even with the dark skin, dark, darker skin Indians, but I will show up in spaces and I identify as dark skin. Some people feel like I'm not as dark, (laughs) but it's interesting because my other dark skin friends will be like, you are received in white spaces with your dark skin, in ways that we aren't, because our nose is bigger or our lips are darker. My lips are more pink. Sometimes I straighten my hair. I've got my braids on right now, but because of the way that I show up. And when they said that, I was like, wow, I really am received. And I started looking at my other friend who's a therapist. She's very dark, full lips. And she is not received well in certain spaces. And we're saying the same exact information, but we have different skin tones, different textures of hair. And it's, it's really disheartening.
0: Yeah, it's wild. And, and I, I'd love to say, no, but that's not right. That's your experience. But that's it's across the board one of my old interns, I think mean, now they're called associates, but she was an intern at the time and she was, she was black and people would ask me, they still do. They go, Hey, who's that black therapist that used to work for you? Like, okay, here's her name. Why are you asking? Because like, I have a client that wants a black therapist. Like, okay, number one, she's from the DR. So what kind of experience are they looking for? And number two, actually, this is number one, she's a sex therapist. Is that what they want? Is that what they're looking for? I mean, she happens to be black and dark skinned because she's from the DR, but it's not a fit. And I know a couple others. Do you want to know about them? So finding resources, I think is huge because it's, man, I think you guys hit on something I'm very passionate about and talk about a lot, is a lot of people have this scarcity mentality. Only a certain amount can make it. There's only enough for for you know some, so I got to get mine. And I see it amongst therapists and therapists become very competitive for clients sometimes. And it really bothers me. And I hear it a lot too, being a white male, like, oh, great. You're a white male in America. But in my profession, being a a white, for me, I I say a white straight male. I don't know the the proper terminology for others, but that's what I say. And, And people will call me and go, hey, well, you're a male therapist. Like I'm full, but you know, others, right? Like What do you mean by male therapist? What do you want? Because I know know a bunch that are fantastic. They happen to be gay and they're great. I know a lot of females that have a lot of masculine energy. What do you want? People trying to access mental health, not realizing they have a lot of choice in who they see.
2: There's such an assumption that if you share an identity with someone that you're going to immediately be able to help them. And that is just not true because people come into, I think, the room with a therapist with so many assumptions and then depending on who the therapist is and what their experiences are on all levels, they also have their own preconceptions and assumptions and biases and I just feel like that's something I really try to work through with people in the brown girl therapy community because they're all like, I need to see a South Asian therapist and I get it and I understand the psychological safety you might feel and I understand all of these things, So it's like, you can't make these assumptions without really a trying it and seeing how you actually feel in the room with them, but you can't make the assumption that just because you both share a certain identity that it's going to just like be a fit.
1: Well, a lot of my Persian friends and clients will not see a Persian therapist because it is so frowned upon in the culture for the most part and are very careful to like make sure like, oh, well, do you have any other Persian clients? Cause I probably know them cause they might, LA is so small. And so they actually like go to the, they're like, no, absolutely not. So it's so interesting to see what direction we go.
0: I want to ask you guys and sort of where we're leading to this is the idea of what you would want to give listeners as a takeaway. If they are either people considering therapy and, and wanting to get access to a therapist maybe with a cultural identity that's similar to theirs, or if they're thinking about going into therapy and becoming a therapist, we have a lot of those listeners, what you would want to say to people that are about to embark on this and and go into this world?
3: It's a twofold question. So to the individuals who are wanting to become therapists, I would have them assess their why, because this road is going to get really hard. We talked about the scarcity mentality. So many different obstacles are going to come along your way. So if you know why you want to get into your field, if you remember that, you write it down. And when days get hard you pull onto that why, it'll serve you well. Because I've had to come back to my why. Why did I choose this route? Because as I explained earlier, initially I wanted to be a lawyer, but then my own lived experiences and wanting to understand mental health and serve those who look like me. That's my why, and that why pushes me on hard days when I'm listening to clients say some of the most heinous stories, and when it's very difficult. So just hold on to your why. Why do you even want to do it? If you say you want to become a therapist because you want to make a lot of money, one, a lot of us don't even make a lot of money, <laughs> so you shouldn't get into this field. For money. It can be a very lucrative field. I also do a lot of destigmatization around that because there's this misconception that we have to be broke and we have to work for free. And I don't believe in free labor. My ancestors did enough work for free that I, I'm not going to do that in my life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so just remember your why. And if it is for money, kind of reassess. <laughs> <laughs> Wait what? <laughs> yeah. And for those of you um, seeking out therapy I would say don't give up I've experienced an extremely horrible therapist and I, me personally I know I'm not everybody's therapist I don't even I'm not even skilled in everything I'm not a relationship therapist that's not my area trauma, grief I got you anxiety, depression I'm your girl so find someone who you can vibe with and I know it may take quite a bit of time, but just don't feel discouraged. Ask questions, really take advantage of those free phone consultations. And if a therapist wants to start seeing you right away without a phone consult, that's kind of a red flag for me. I I would never see someone who I don't even know what their needs are. If I'm going to be a good fit, we're definitely doing a phone consultation first. So don't just hop right in without having that phone consultation first. And just know that it's okay to not be okay and you'll feel better and you'll be able to process things. And even if it didn't work out with five therapists, try five more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you find the right one, you know,
3: I think, you
2: know, for both sets of people, I would say that you are going to have to get comfortable and learn how to advocate for yourself. So when we talk about clients seeking culturally sensitive therapy, I think like Ashley said, Definitely make the most of those consultation phone calls. Have a list of questions prepared. Don't be scared to ask the hard questions of like, you know, let's say you don't have access to to a therapist who might look like you and that's what you want. So you're going to someone else. Have they ever worked with someone who has has the same struggles that you have? In the same way, have they ever worked with someone from your community? How are they doing their own work on their identity? It's okay to ask these questions. What kind of trainings are they um, supplementing their licensure with or their practice with? These are things that I think can make people more comfortable in learning more about their therapist. I think a lot of people, especially in the brown girl therapy community, tend to think of going to a therapist, like you would go to maybe like, you know, your general doctor to get your annual physical. It's not the same. I think, the same way you would hire someone to do your graphic design, your website, you're going to want someone who has the same aesthetic as you, who you can get along with, who will hear your vision, who can talk to you. You're paying a therapist. You are paying someone for services. So it's okay if you're not comfortable. You should you know, listen to your gut because as we know, therapy is really only successful if the client is comfortable in the room with the therapist. And so I think a lot of clients forget that they are their own advocates in that way. Being able to say that they're not getting the help they need Something's not working, they need something different. Be open to talking to your therapist about that. When it comes to people who want to go into the field, I think out of all of us, I'm the one who's still in school. I'm fairly new. I'm I'm still doing the program. I think Ashley is right about getting clear on why. I think, especially, especially, especially if you are a person of color going into this field, I think I was not prepared for how. Eurocentric and colonial. Some of my education was going to be, I just wasn't prepared for it. That's not to say that I'm not getting good education, that I don't have great professors, but we are learning theories and techniques that were normed and created by and for white men ultimately. And so I had to do a lot of my own self advocating for what I wanted to do with some of my clients, how I wanted to, what I wanted to learn, what I wanted to research, what was important to me in that way. There's just a lot of learning and getting comfortable advocating for yourself, advocating for your own education, advocating for your own healthcare. I got really lucky that I started my program at the same time as a few professors of color who have been incredible mentors, even building Brown Girl Therapy. I've been able to connect with other counselors who are across the the nation who are able to like, you know, have Zoom calls with me where I feel less alone. I feel less isolated in my identity and the work I want to do. There's not a lot of research on second generation immigrant mental health. Um, A lot of the immigrant mental health research is on immigrants. There's Mm -hmm. some research, But as we know about research, it takes a really long time. I think research is obviously incredibly valuable information. But when we're talking about real time right now, helping people, learning how to help people, mentorship is key. I think books are key because and even just the way we consume media and what this goes back to what we're watching, what we're reading, what we're listening to and then social media for sure. I think that I feel very humbled and privileged that I've been able to create a space where I can educate other people on the second gen immigrant experience. And that has been, I get messages all the time from therapists from around the nation who are like, your post is helping me with my client. I've been able to send my client to your page as a supplementary resource. So like, you know, that's how I feel like I'm learning alongside everyone else, but I'm creating the resources for people to have that learning because I'm realizing how much I'm not have. I don't have it in my education.
3: I definitely agree with all of that. Mentorship is key. I believe we should all have a mentor and we should be a mentor And in addition to that, what have I learned? The most profound thing that has stuck with me, it's driven the work that I do, has been around post-traumatic slave syndrome and really just recognizing how slavery had so much of a generational impact on our behaviors, our thoughts and our actions as black people. There were things that served us well during slavery that are very destructive within our communities. And once I was able to understand why that was occurring, it changed my perception on my life. For example, during slavery, Black mothers, they would really talk poorly about their children because they were going to be sold off. So they would say, hey, my son is weak. Like he ain't no good. They would say all of these negative things, but it was really to protect their son so that their son was sold off. And slavery ended and here we are present day and that's still been passed down within our family where we're talking poorly about our children. And that was something that I experienced within my family. And when I started realizing, well, my mom said those things to me because her mom said those things to her, her mom said it to her and the slave master said it to her. So when I recognized that and I seen how it impacted our family, we were able to sit down and have a conversation so that we could literally change that because it's not that they didn't love us, it's that that's how they were taught to protect us, but it's very helpful. And then at that point, so much damage can already have been done to the psyche. Wow. And there's so many other things in that when it comes to, that was just like one little example that really pushed the work that I do to really heal from racial trauma and just this legacy of slavery. And even within the Jewish community, with looking at how like the Holocaust and how that showed up within your ancestors and how it's passed down generationally to your family and impacts your behaviors, how you respond, Native Americans, the things that they experience within their communities. So we all have this particular generational trauma, um, but it was a real big like aha moment when I seen certain negative aspects within my own family life. And it's like, wow that served us well during slavery, but we're free people and we're still doing these harmful things. Now, how can we change as a people and be better? Yes.
2: I just want to say that to that point, because this is so fresh for me, for my family counseling class last year, we had to do our own genogram. And I realized there's almost, I almost feel shame admitting this out loud, but there I could not tell you my grandparents' names. Like the disconnect between me and my family abroad, there's such a big disconnect that doing that genogram just also taught me so much about my family and taught me so much about what my family had endured with the 1984 sick genocide or the partition or all of these things. And so just jumping off Ashley's point, like really being able to get more information about your family and, and learning about them and learning about how these behaviors and mindsets might have been passed down from something traumatic. Our ancestors have experienced. It really is. I mean, I've also experienced that aha moment where I'm like, Oh, okay, I can trace this back and I understand it. And now because I have a link, lang- I have language for it. I can break it and change it, which is so powerful.
3: I love genograms. I have all my clients do one. Oh my God. I love them. I love them. <laughs>
2: Ooh,
1: I'm going to start doing that.
0: <laughs> yeah, Ashley. And I started this by saying uh, something I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said it on your Ted talk, the we're not dying well. And I think I like I heard that and I just said, yeah, I don't think we're living well either. And hearing you guys speak now, like, I think what I hear shifting actively is that we're now asking for help and we're not suffering in silence as much anymore, that we're, whether it's social media, amongst our own families, in our own cultures, we're speaking up now. And that's, that's the point of, to me, conversations like this. And I'm so appreciative for you guys having this conversation with us. I mean, we're all doing it as therapists, but I I think what you guys are doing to me takes, takes it a notch above because you are kind of putting out there your experience and, and your culture and what you're doing and, and saying in a certain way. I'm trying to do that in my way. And I realize I'm a white male in this world, but this is, this is my version of what I can do and, and open things up. I think we all hopefully are doing our own part if we can.
2: Yeah. We all have our own spheres of influence. So yeah. we all need to be doing even if it doesn't feel like we're making a difference, I assure everyone who's listening that if you are unlearning, relearning, doing all the right things, getting uncomfortable, you are probably impacting someone else to do the same. So,
3: yeah. For sure. If you made it this far in the podcast, like that's <laughs> profound. That's, yeah. 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 I've been like, oh, they're talking about that race stuff. Right. Right. <laughs>
0: Again, thank you guys so much for being here. And I want to let people know where they can find you. Take it away. Ashley, if people want to find you, what's the best place for them to get you?
3: You can find me on Instagram at therapy with Ash. I'm on LinkedIn, Ashley McGirt, my website, ashleymcgirt.com. Pretty much most social media platforms, it's going to be at therapy with Ash. Awesome.
0: And Sahej?
3: yeah so instagram is
2: at brown girl therapy i also have a personal professional page that is at sahaj coley and then twitter at sahaj coley i don't have a website so don't try to find
1: one but yeah so twitter and instagram and like and linkedin (laughs) yeah okay awesome right on thank you guys thank you for having us